So last week was the, the first of five weeks in our series on prayer, and we looked specifically at desiring prayer. Like that was our topic. That's what we were trying to talk about. How do we desire prayer? How do we enjoy that time with God? And what we said was that the quality of our prayer life, like so many things, lives somewhere on a spectrum between growth and mastery. And I confess that for me, I still feel very much like I'm on the growth side of the spectrum when it comes to my prayer life. There's still a lot that leaves uh, desire, leaves me to be desired. And so I'm not satisfied with the quality of my prayer life. And by the show of hands I saw and from what I, I read online, like most of us are not satisfied with the quality of our prayer life. So I'm not alone in that. So how do we grow? How do we grow when we're not satisfied with our prayer life? And I think that the answer to that is we grow in the same way that we grow at anything. That one of two things needs to be present in order for us to grow. We need to either have desire for prayer or we need to have discipline in prayer. Desire or discipline, those two things are critical. So we either naturally crave prayer, in which case we probably already have a really strong prayer life because we just enjoy it so much, or we see it as something that, that needs repetition and routine established, and we call that discipline. We need discipline in our prayer life. So in other words, if our prayer lives aren't already strong, there's a good chance that we need to install a little discipline into our prayer lives. Amen? Yeah. That's what we have to do. And so I'm not talking about the kind that happens here at church on Sunday morning when everyone is around and watching us and observing. We get to impress people because Jesus chose us, shows us in Matthew chapter 6 that he's far more concerned about the kind of prayer lives we have by ourselves at home in secret behind closed doors in private than he ever is about the kind of prayer lives that we have in public when everyone is watching us so that they might be impressed by the length of our prayers and the eloquence of our words. Um, He's not concerned with that. He says that if our attitude, uh, if that's our attitude toward prayer, then we've already received our reward in full. Like people are impressed. Okay, there's your reward. You've impressed some people. Instead, Jesus reminds us to go into our room. He says, close the door, pray in secret. And then the God who sees our heart is going to look at our heart. and He's going he's to see that we are seeking his approval rather than the approval of other people. And he's going to be honored in that. And so as we conclude our time uh, last week, uh, there was an ask. There was a little bit of homework, if you will, uh, that, that we would all hopefully install a little bit of discipline into our prayer lives together. And so the ask was basically this. There were kind of three components of it. Number one, that we would read or pray a psalm. I talked about this a few minutes ago. Number two, that we would meditate on that psalm for a few minutes after we read it. Just let it really sink in. Wrestle with it. Try to understand what the psalmist is saying. And then we would just pray over Lake Merced's church needs. We'd get out our Echo app or whatever and just pray over the needs of this church. And then once we've done that, we'd connect with our prayer partner. We'd call up whoever it is that we partnered up with last week. And we'd reflect on what we read and we pray briefly together. Fairly simple, right? Don't mean to make it overly structured or overly complicated, but as you'll notice, you think about that, there's this uh, there's inner prayer life component to it, like what I do privately between me and God, and there's this outer prayer life component, what we do together. And so if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you, it is never ever too late to start. In fact, that would be Satan's greatest weapon in a time like this, is to go, ah, I wasn't here last week, I'm just gonna go ahead and skip that ask. Let me encourage you not to do that. Uh, if you found a prayer partner who really wasn't all in this week, find one who is this week. If you weren't here last week and you didn't get to join, uh, this is a great week to start. And so my, my, my hope and encouragement is before you leave today, make sure you find someone who does not have a prayer partner and get connected and spend daily time in prayer. We're talking 10 minutes a day. 
15 minutes a day, and it can change your life. And so uh, this week we are turning our attention to understanding prayer. That's our topic. We're, we're trying to understand prayer just a little bit more. And so as we get there, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to spend some time in Psalm 1 together, reflecting on what we read on Monday, and then we're going to open with a word of prayer. We just stand as we reflect on Psalm 1 together. The psalmist says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree who's planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Mighty God, you are worthy of our praise. That word just keeps coming to my mind in these last few weeks. You deserve all of it, Father. You are worthy of it, Lord. We are not worthy of you. And yet in your grace and in your humility and in your love for us, Lord, you, you have extended opportunity after opportunity for us to be near you in relationship with you, Father. You literally came and you tabernacled among us. You sent your Holy Spirit among us, Father. And I pray that right now as the wind blows outside, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be in this room. I pray that you would open our ears, that you'd open our eyes, that you'd give us the courage to seek our own heart, that you would soften any hardness that's there, Lord, and that you would speak through me. Father, I pray that no word I speak uh, dishonors you uh, or, or is spoken of my own accord, Lord, but that you would speak this morning, that you would change us, that you would encourage us and lift us and give us a voice of praise for you, Father, because you are glorious. We praise your holy name. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. And all God's church said, Amen. Amen. Let's see. So as we, as we talked about last week, uh, prayer is kind of a big deal. It's, it's the single greatest expression of faith in the world today. And it penetrates everything. It penetrates every culture. It penetrates every faith group. It penetrates every nation and every walk of life. Like prayer is everywhere. It penetrates even into the lives of those who are faithless, even into the lives of people who claim that they do not believe in God. Prayer is everywhere. And John Calvin once said, he said, there is within the human mind and indeed by natural instinct an awareness of divinity. And therefore, he said, the seed of religion is planted in all. The seed of religion is planted in all. The, the, the notion of God is instinctual. It's within us. And so like I said last week, it is incredibly natural and instinctual for us to pray. I, I believe that God wired us and created us to be people who pray because he always created us for community. Right? Before mankind ever lived outside of the Garden of Eden, where did he create us to live? 
He created us to live inside the Garden of Eden, right? right? He created us to live in community with God, a place where God would just walk among the people. You'd hear the footsteps of God in the Garden of Eden, and that's where God created us to be. And so you could argue that our instinct for prayer is really a yearning to return to our roots and to our heritage, that much like a salmon, you, you know their story, right? They travel thousands of miles upstream over waterfalls, crazy stuff to get back to where they came from, right? Our prayer life is kind of like that, um, that even if we reject faith, even if we reject the Lord, we can't help sometimes but return to where we came from because it's part of who we are. I would say that prayer is part of who we are. It's, it's part of what God created us to do and to be. And yet not all prayer is equal. Not all prayer is equal. That when we think about prayer, we recognize that prayer can look wildly different depending on the context, depending on who's doing it, depending on when they're doing it, depending on where they're doing it. And so when we think about prayer, like there are sort of these two major categories or, or, or extremes that prayer sort of falls in, again, with a kind of a spectrum, right? On one side, you have mystical prayer. This is a term that I'm not using. I'm, I'm using someone else's term. But mystical prayer is that inwardly uh, focused, that contemplative, silent kind of prayer, right? We're, we're all kind of familiar with this, where the goal is almost conscious nothingness. That in, in a lot of other religions, uh, it really is an attempt at emptying the mind of everything. And we see this displayed most obviously in things like maybe Zen Buddhism or, or other Eastern religions. But there's a, a segment of Christian prayer that very much observes and is trying to, to free the mind, very much tries to do a mystical prayer kind of thing uh, where we free our mind of, of worldly concerns and, and thoughts and instead just focus on being fully present with God in that moment and, and listening and, and, and silence is such an important part of, of that kind of approach to prayer. But on the other side of the spectrum, you have prophetic prayer. This is Tim Keller's term. And he says prophetic prayer is like a direct contrast to the mystical approach. Whereas mystical is inward, prophetic is outward. And uh, with this approach, you know, he's, Keller says, you know, God is sort of outside us. Like this is our mentality. He's outside us. He's transcendent above us. He is holy. He is glorious. And he is other. And so where mystical prayer almost aims for absorption into God, prophetic prayer aims for a closeness to the God who is there. And so when we think about different kinds of prayer, what I want you guys to see is this. What's most important, I think, is not what it looks like, at least not initially, but rather who the prayer is addressed to. And while, while prayer may look similar across cultures, I think the who of prayer matters an awful lot more than the how, again, at least initially. Because Keller defines prayer as the, the personal communicative response to the knowledge of God. And the key word here, I think, is knowledge. Knowledge of God. What do I mean? I mean that on the surface, I think we can understand that while Christians and Muslims, for instance, both pray to a single God, there is a, a stark difference between the Allah of Islam and the Yahweh of the Judeo-Christian Bible. And so in a, in a related and slightly more nuanced way, the God who Christians pray to is even different than the God that Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses pray to, that even when we begin to use some of the same words and language like spirit and son and God and father and Jesus and all these words, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the same God. And so knowledge of God is really, really important to our prayer life. You all following me so far? It's so important. And so for those of us who read uh, Psalm 5 this week, hopefully you read that on Friday. Psalm 5 would have been Friday's Psalm. 
Look at what the psalmist says. Look what David writes. He says, listen to my words. And in your translation, it probably says, listen to my words, Lord. Or you see it on the screen right here. But this is actually the divine name. This is, we call this the Tetragrammaton. This is Yahweh, the, the name of God. It says, listen to my words, Yahweh. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. Amen. To you I pray. David gets really, really specific. And so his cry isn't a cry to a generic God. It's a cry to a very specific God. And he differentiates his prayer to Yahweh from the other gods of other nations. We see the same happen in Psalm 4. You go back one psalm. The psalmist says, How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord, again, know that Yahweh has set apart his faithful servant for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Amen. What is he saying there? He's saying, your gods don't hear, but Yahweh hears when I call to him. Do you see what he's saying? There's a very specific recipient in David's prayer. A very specific recipient. Recipient. He's not just praying into the ether. Like he's addressing a very specific person. And I think that matters an awful lot. You know, when Tiff and I started dating in high school, this may surprise you, but it didn't happen by accident. It happened a little bit intentionally and purposefully, um, although not for me, because I was so dense that I didn't realize that she liked me like that. All of a sudden, there's this new girl who's walking with me to class every day, and I was so dense, I thought I just had a new friend. I had no idea what was going on in her head or in her mind until suddenly, you know, one day after school, I'm getting ready to go to football practice. She's getting ready to go to cheerleading, and she hands me a note. And that note told me how she felt about me. But there was, yeah, I know, aw, exactly, thank you. <clears throat> but it was specific. It was addressed to me, and it got my attention when nothing else had. If someone else had found that note, it wouldn't have meant anything to them because it wasn't for them. But for me, it was life-changing, literally life-changing. She's sitting here with me today 20 years later, right? It changed my life because it was addressed to me. And I think our relationship with God is kind of like that. You know, we're, we're, what David models in the Psalms is like that. It's not generic prayer. It's specific. And that changes something for him. And I think it changes something for God. It means something to God. It, it should mean something to us that when we pray, that we pause for a moment and we acknowledge who it is that we are actually praying to. That should mean something to us. That this person, this God, is the same God who created the sun, the moon, and the stars. That he's the same God who literally parted the Red Sea for Moses and the Israelites. And he's the same God who brought down Jericho's walls with a trumpet blast. Since when do walls fall because of musical instruments? Like, it doesn't happen. He's the same God who helped bring down Goliath through a small stone, when, through David, when no one else could. Like, we worship that same God. Yeah, amen, church. Come on now. Amen. We worship that same God and we pray to that same God. And if that same God could lead the Israelites by a pillar of cloud and fire, imagine what he is capable of in our lives. Just imagine. And so that's why Jesus looks at his disciples in Matthew 17. And he, look, he says, guys, if you have even the tiniest amount of faith, just the tiniest amount, like faith the size of a mustard seed, like it's, it's so small it doesn't even matter almost, if you have that much faith, 
He says, there's no limit to what you can do. There is no limit. You can move mountains with that kind of faith. And so why, why does he say that? He says that not because of the greatness of the disciples. Why does he say that? He says that because of the greatness of who? He says that because of the greatness of God. He encourages them to pray to that God, a God that moves mountains when you have faith the size of a mustard seed. That's not just any God. Like that God is able. That God is powerful. That's the God that we worship, church. But we can never get there without knowledge of who God is, specifically who God is. When Tiff handed me that note, she did so much more than declare her affection for me right in that moment. What she did was she set off a chain reaction, declaring from that point on that something drastic was going to change in our relationship. It was changing between us. She was invested in getting to know me. And if I was going to reciprocate, then there would have to be a mutual investment on my part to get to know her. In other words, in order for our relationship to advance to the next level, our knowledge of one another was going to have to change and it was going to have to increase. We were going to have to build that relationship. And so that's why Keller says they, the, the, the clearer our understanding of who God is, the better our prayers. The clearer the understanding of who God is, the better our prayers. You look at the book of Galatians. Paul is writing to the church, and he's reminding them. He's saying, guys, there was a time when you were slaves to sin. Like, you didn't know God. And he says in Galatians 4.9, he says, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? He's saying, like, there's such a difference between what you have and what you had. What you have is a God who knows you. What you have is a God you know. Why are you turning back to a, a, a previous time when you didn't know God, when you weren't known by him? Why would you do that? He writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And what I want you to see is like when Tiffany gave me that letter, the goal for our relationship changed, right? It had to. The goal instantly became for her to know me fully and for me to know her fully, right? Are you following along with what I'm saying? And so the same is true of our relationship with God. And I want you to recognize that it's reciprocal. This isn't just about us knowing more about God, right? This is about us knowing him. Not knowing about him. This is about us knowing him Amen. personally. Amen. And it's also about him knowing us. So the question is, do we know God in the way that we know our best friends? Do we know God in the way that we know our husbands and wives? Do we know God in the way that we know our children? Because that is a standard I think scripture is calling us to, to know God in that way. That when we don't know God as we ought to know God, then our knowledge of God is too vague. And if our knowledge of God is too vague, it makes us ask a question. Is this even real prayer? Yeah. If our knowledge of God is too vague, we have to ask, is this even real prayer? Because full prayer, I think, is a continuation of conversations that, that God begins first through his word and secondly through his grace, which, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. In other words, the, the key to real prayer life is built on a foundation of God's word. The key to a real prayer life is built on a foundation of scripture, on a foundation of the Bible, that if we don't know God's word, can we actually know God? And if we don't know God, 
then our prayer isn't a prayer to the true God that's there. Rather, it's prayer to something undefined, likely something emerging from our own minds. Uh, it reminds me of kind of the, the end of Judges. If you guys remember the very end of Judges, where there's this depiction of the nation of Israel as this, this nation without a king, right? The very last verse of the book of Judges says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what? Do you remember this passage? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. My translation here says, as I saw fit. But I like the other one better. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When we pray to an undefined God, we leave ourselves open to praying to a God of our own making. A God who's right in our own eyes, rather than the God who is there, rather than the God of the Bible. In 2018, Pew Research Center did a study on beliefs in the Western world. So this is the Americas and in Europe. And here's what they found. They found that fewer than half of all people polled believe in a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful. Fewer than half. They found that only 27% of people believe that God would judge people. Only 27%. Including only 60% of church-going Christians. They found that Western Christians universally see God as somebody who rewards people, but there is never an aspect of punishment to him. He's only the great rewarder. And they saw that, that few believe that God actually communicates with people. Few believe that God actually communicates with people. I will say that, that church-going Christians in that research did. And this is just a small sample size of what I'm talking about. But the point I hope you're seeing is that there are no shortage of opinions about who God is and what he does and all that stuff. And yet if we aren't careful, and if we aren't purposeful about knowing God for who he actually is, it is really, really, really easy to worship a God made in our own image. Really easy. A God who reflects our values rather than the God who is actually there. So it does me no good. Husbands, right? You can, you can agree with this. It does me no good to look at my wife and tell her who I think she is or who I think she should be. That does me absolutely no good because our relationship and our marriage is built on a foundation of knowing who she actually is. And so our relationship with God is built on a foundation of knowing who he actually is. And so when we begin to know the God who is actually there, everything about prayer changes because now God is not just a God who says stuff. He's a God who actually does stuff. In Keller's book, he mentions a guy by the name of Timothy Ward who wrote a book called Words of Life. And what Ward begins to say about God is that God's word, think about this, God's word and his actions are inseparable. God's word and his actions are inseparable, that his words are his actions. Think about this. He doesn't just say, let there be light, and then he goes and makes light, right? No, his, his very word is what brings light into being. The things that he speaks are inseparable from the things that he actually does. And that should change how we read God's word. Right. It should really change how we read God's word because, again, the things he speaks are the things that he does, and he speaks to us through his word. And so understanding prayer starts with understanding God. And understanding God starts with understanding what he said. And understanding what he said is the same as understanding what he has done, is doing, and will do. That that is the foundation of true prayer. Amen. 
And so I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew 6. We're going to be in Matthew 6 here. Because here in the midst of this sermon, this is Jesus' sermon, Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus kind of begins his ministry, Jesus begins to teach them, and he begins to expand on the words of God. He begins to expand on the law or on the Torah. And he says things like, all right, guys, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. But I say to you, if you're even angry with your brother, then you're subject to judgment. And he goes through a number of these, these phrases, right? You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And then as we get into Matthew 6, he, says, he turns his attention to why we do what we do and whether we do it to be known by God or whether we do it to be known a certain way by man. Whether we want to be glorified by others or whether we actually want to glorify him. And so he says in Matthew 6, verse 1, he says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have your, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He says and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. And I want you to just stop and notice how Jesus phrases what he says in this passage. Notice he doesn't call God God. And he doesn't call God Lord. What is he calling God here? Yeah, he says your father. What does that say about the relationship and I recognize there are some people in this room who've told me stories that may not have the greatest relationship with their father. But I want you to understand the heart of what Jesus is saying. Because when he uses this term father, it's a term of intimacy. It assumes some things about our closeness with him. That it's a father-child relationship. It's, it's the kind of relationship that is defined by an intimate knowledge of one another. That when we use a term like father, we are saying way more than a male person who begat somebody else, right? There, there are lots of people who begat other people, and they're not father or mother necessarily to them. There's a relational component here. It's a term of endearment. Elsewhere, Jesus uses the term Abba Father, which is something more like how we might use the term daddy, right? It's, it's casual. It's intimate. It, it's a, it's a built-in deep knowledge of one another. And so Jesus says, hey, when you're talking to your dad... Don't do that so everyone else is impressed with you. That's not a relationship at all. He says, no, go somewhere private. Talk to your father, the guy who loves you. And because he knows you, he already knows what you need before you even ask him. And I found it interesting. Uh, I was listening to a thing that Tim Mackey, who's behind the Bible Project, if anyone enjoys the Bible Project stuff, 
And he mentioned how odd it is, the way Westerners tend to react to that phrase. He said, you know, most people read the line, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And what's their reaction? I bet a lot of you can anticipate it. Well, why even pray then? Like, if he already knows what I need, like, why do I even need to talk to him? Why, why even do that? And, and he, he talked about how, how strange that is, because that's not Jesus' line of thinking or teaching at all here. Jesus is looking at it 180 degrees the other way, and he's saying, hey, because God already knows what you need before you ask him, then pray. Like, that's the kind of God he is. Talk to that God. That's a God who loves you. That's a father. He already knows what you need before you ask him, so pray. And so I think our heart toward that one statement about Jesus reveals a lot about our relationship with the God that we pray to. Like, is God just somebody that we have to talk to when we need something? Or is he the father whom we talk to because we know him? Does that make sense? Is he the God we talk to because we need something or because we know him and we love him? And so Jesus says, okay, in verse 9, this is how you should pray when you talk to your father. He says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And just some, some observations that I want to draw your attention to briefly. Uh, if you read this, this passage in your Bible, you'll notice it's probably about 10 lines. The, the Lord's Prayer is about 10 lines in your Bible. And it's kind of broken into two halves. So in the first half, the first five lines, the pronoun that is being used here is a second person singular, you. Okay? You, you, you. And in the latter half, the pronoun shifts to the first person plural, our. And so you get this your, 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 our, our, our kind of progression. And this isn't an accident. You may remember the exchange that, that Jesus has with his Pharisees in Matthew 22. They gather together and they're, they're trying to trap Jesus. And they, so they give him this question, right? It's an attempt uh, to, to, to build a case against him because there's no easy answer to this question. They want to charge him as a heretic. They want to charge him as a false teacher. They're trying to eventually build a case so they can kill him. And they say, okay, Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Of course, there's 616 commands. So which is the greatest one? And so Jesus does something kind of unexpected. He doesn't just give one simple, singular answer he first references Deuteronomy, something they might have expected. And he says, okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And you'd think he'd be done. Like he's answered the question, end of story. Okay, it's done. But he's not. And he continues and he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And so oftentimes we read this and we sort of read it like Jesus answered them with what they expected and then threw in like a bonus second commandment for fun. So we call one the greatest command and we call the other the second greatest command, but that's not actually how Jesus is presenting it. This is not a first second kind of answer. It's more of like a 1A, 1B kind of answer. And so if I ask you to describe what a penny looks like, everyone in this room, some of you might say it's, well, it's copper and it has the head of Abraham on it, right? And if I ask another person, they might say, well, it's copper and it has the Lincoln Memorial on it. Which person is right? Both, right? They both are. And so you realize you really can't describe a penny until you describe both sides of it. That, 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 that's kind of an important part of describing a penny. And so in the same way, you can't really answer the Pharisee's question 
without describing both sides of the answer. And we realize these two commands are irrevocably linked with one another, that you cannot love God without loving your neighbor. Think about that. You cannot love God without loving your neighbor, and you cannot love your neighbor without loving God. I want you to meditate on that for just a moment. Because there is this vertical component between God and I, and there's this horizontal component, the relationship between you and me, between one another. And so I want you to look at how Jesus prays here in the Lord's Prayer and the language he uses, because the, the correlation here is unmistakable. That when we pray, we are called to do two things. We are called first to love the Father, to spend time with him, to revere him, to enjoy him, to adore him, to love him, and to see him on the throne as the king that he is. And second, we are called to love our neighbor, to petition him on behalf of one another. It's called intercessory prayer. We, we petition him on behalf of community. I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't just pray the way so many of us pray. He doesn't use words like me and my and mine, right? What kind of words does he use in this prayer? He uses words like us and our that Jesus models a life of the same kind of other-mindedness that we've been talking about for so many months now. His concern is for others. This is how you pray, with a concern for God and for others. And so the other thing I want you to see is the brevity of Jesus' prayer. This is not a long prayer. This is a very short prayer. In fact, in Luke chapter 11, we read of a time when Jesus is praying and one person, one disciple comes up to him and says, hey, Jesus, like, can you teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples how to pray? And so Jesus says, okay, yeah, so here's how you pray. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us uh, each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Done. What do you notice about that prayer? Well, first thing you'll notice is it's got a lot of the same language that we just read in Matthew chapter 6, right? It's very, very similar. But what else do you notice about it? What's different between it and Matthew 6? It's even shorter. It's even shorter. Why is that? And I love Mackey's comment on this. He says, you know, if you pray this prayer, you won't even look very religious. And that's Jesus' point. You won't look very religious praying this prayer. And that is Jesus' point. Because back in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, don't pray like the pagans pray. And we hear that word pagan and we think like modern day usage, right? It's it's this really bad, negative thing. It's, it's like a godless person, right? But that's not actually the, the, what Jesus is saying here. Because the word that our, our Bibles translate as pagans is actually the word ethnics. He's saying don't pray like the ethnic people pray. And so in a Hellenized culture, he's talking about the Greeks and he's talking about the Romans. You guys are all probably familiar with Homer, maybe read some of his stuff in school. What was the relationship like between the people and the Greek and Roman gods? Was it good? No. And so that they were often angry and they were vengeful and they needed to be pleased. And so how would the ethnics have talked to them? 
Well, they would have begged. They would have pleaded for, for them to be shown favor. They would have begged for them to be kind and not vengeful. They would have kept babbling on and on and on in fear of what the gods might do, of what Zeus might do, of what Poseidon might do, and so on. And Jesus says, you don't need to pray like that. You don't need to do that. It's an encouragement to let our words be few. You look at the Psalms. The vast majority of the Psalms are what? 10 or 15 lines, right? Even the longest Psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible would take you, what, 10 minutes to read? Think about this. Yet many of us feel like prayer is this really, really big, big thing that is so hard to do correctly. And so what do we do? We don't even try. We, we treat it like it's eating an elephant or like it's running an ultramarathon, which only one of us in this room actually I saw Jay look up when I said ultramarathon. It doesn't have to be an insurmountable challenge to have a rich prayer life. I once heard a prominent pastor, someone who's, who's had quite an impact on me, um, just my faith and the way that I, I think about Jesus and God. But he said, you know, I, I would want to know that everyone on my staff prays at least an hour a day. And if they didn't, I would want to let too so I could fire them. He said, it's important to me that we're, we're praying at least an hour a day. And while I love this pastor's teaching, I'm not sure that's what, what Jesus would actually say about prayer. I think what, what scripture teaches is far more about the continuous nature of our prayer lives than it is about the length of our prayers. You know, I think about my relationship with Tiff. You know, some of my conversations with her are long, and other conversations are very, very brief. Why? It's because we know one another deeply and intimately. Same with my kids. Same with you guys. And yet the brevity of our conversations has nothing to do with their frequency. Because Tiff and I speak all the time. We speak often. And so the topic of prayer is, is so rich and it is so robust, and there's so much more that I wanted to say today, and I just didn't think you guys wanted to sit here for 80 minutes. Am I right? <laughs> maybe, maybe 40 is enough. We can, we can cover a lot more this week in home groups. Uh, we can cover more next week as we talk about learning prayer. But if there's one thing that I want you to take with you this week as you reflect on this message and try to apply it to your prayer life, it's about knowing who you're praying to. Know who you're praying to. That God is not just some God. He's the God of Abraham. And he's the God of Isaac. And he's the God of Jacob. He's the God who creates just by speaking words. Things happen. He's the God who rescues. He's the God who redeems. And he's the God who is, by his very definition, love. He's the God who loved us so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have what? He's a God with a name. And he's a God who knit you together in your mother's womb and fearfully and wonderfully made you. And so you think about that God and everything you know about that God. We don't approach that God the way the Greeks approached Zeus, do we? We approach that God as a child approaches their daddy with a cry of Abba, Father. That is how we approach that God. We approach God, a God that we know, and a God that, that fully knows us. We approach that God to revere him, to enjoy him, and to praise his holy name that is above every name. And so we work to desire, or as we work to desire prayer, my encouragement is to echo the words of Psalm 1 that we read at the beginning, that we would delight in the words of the Lord. 
that we would delight in the Lord himself. Because it is when we grow in knowledge of God and we surrender ourselves to be known by God that we move, I think, toward truly understanding prayer. And so I just want to leave you with this. Uh, Several months ago, a lot of you know I had the privilege to baptize Muhammad. And so once a week, for most every week since then, we've been meeting for two or three hours at a time. But this, this last week, we began to pray together. And so every day, we would, we would jump on the phone around 5 o'clock, and we'd spend 10 or 15 minutes Amen. just praying. And uh, I, I was kind of joking with him on Friday night. I said, man, you, you really need to be preaching this sermon, not me, because I, I think you get this stuff way more than I do. And he said, oh, no, I'm not ready yet. I don't have confidence. And I said, oh, that's fine. I was more kidding. But I, I learned so much more about what it looks like and sounds like to love God and revere God from just listening to his words this week. Um, I've probably learned more from him in certain ways than I have in in so many years of listening to sermons and classes and study and so on. You remember that George Herbert quote I shared last week for those who were here? He said that prayer was a kind of tune. It was a kind of tune which all things hear and fear. And so Keller kind of responded to that and said, when your heart has been tuned to God, your joy has an effect on those around you. And so Muhammad's tune for prayer has encouraged me, has challenged me, and has blessed me more than words can say. And so I share that partly to encourage you with your prayer partners this week. And I share that partly to encourage you to find some time to pray with Muhammad because it's very rich and blessed. Um, So huddle with him. And I share that partly to remind you that a, a true heart for prayer affects the people around you. It impacts the people around you. So run to it. Run to it. You've seen those videos of soldiers who return home from nine months, 12 months, 18 months overseas, right? They haven't seen their kids in a year, year and a half. And they go to school, they go to a football game, they go to some public event, and they surprise their kids who don't know to expect them. And what do the kids do when they see them? In front of thousands of people, they will run and jump into their parents' arms with tears of joy. They don't care that they don't look cool. (laughs) No one tries to walk with a... Swagger, nothing like that. They just run and jump into their arms with tears of joy. I think I would argue you might be able to learn a whole lot more about understanding prayer from watching one of those videos than you ever could from reading hundreds of pages of academic books or hundreds of sermons from guys like me on the topic. And so as I close this morning, my encouragement to you is not to be a person who strives to know everything there is about prayer, but rather to be a person who strives to know God through prayer. There's a big, big difference between those two things. And so I want to encourage you, church, as we stand, let's sing, let's worship God with all of our hearts. If you are joining us today for the first time and you have not uh, received Christ into your life, I want to encourage you and invite you to do that. I'd love to talk with you about that here as we sing this song. And if you have been in Christ your whole life and just say, you know what, I'm ready to rededicate my life to Christ. I really haven't been living with him the way I want to, but we want to give you that opportunity as well. But, but let us use this moment purposefully, church, to be a church that really draws near to God in prayer. It is life-giving. It is life-giving. And I, I pray that we take those words seriously. It's really, really easy for us to let Satan do his best work in times like this. Yeah. It's really, really easy for us to have a hard heart and say, you know what? Sure, it sounds good, but it's not for me. Yeah. Let me encourage you not to do that today. 
soften your heart, find someone to pray with and partner with and go deep with. Muhammad blessed me a lot this week. Amen. You will be blessed too. And I encourage you to do that. Let's stand and sing.